I love the way this day begins with big hymns and big anthems and big music and big voices. Jenny, I knew you had a great voice. I didn't know it was that great. Thank you for that. The children were wonderful this morning. I got to see them a little bit on my phone. Not that I was watching on my phone while I was driving, just so we're clear about that. The Palm Parade and all the rest. This, This is the day when you just really do want to stand up and shout out, right on King Jesus. We're so thrilled for this excitement. In fact, even in my head when I hear that phrase, right on King Jesus, I actually hear the word right, as in right on King Jesus. It's not very funny, I know, but just what pops in my head, this big, exciting day, we want to shout Hosanna. Maybe you don't know that the word Hosanna means God save us, but it feels like a good word, a good religious word, something we should say and fill the room with. Hosanna, Hosanna. Right on, King Jesus. It's a wonderful day. There was a, there was a children's choir in Alabama that did something similar to what we did this morning where the children came in and led a palm procession uh, during the opening hymn. But before they, they did that, the choir director had arranged for one of the little boys in the choir to stand on the chancel at the very front of the sanctuary with a palm. And before the music started, before the kids would actually come in, he would stand on the chancel holding his palm up and say, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And then the music would begin, and the children would, would come down for the parade. Came, Dave, came Palm Sunday. He got up onto the chancel. He was very nervous. And he forgot his line. And he looked around, and then he, then he remembered. And he said, Oh, Hosanna, don't you cry for me. <laughs> That's the corniest joke I've ever told, I think, in, in church. But it works. But it, it worked that day. That's the kind of day it is, right? Hosanna. Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes. There's this, even this sense of, of nervous excitement in the text from, from Luke. This, the, the way that Luke describes the day, the disciples are excited. They're full of, of energy, and, and, and there's, there's this movement in the text that moves us from quiet to, to that big building shout of the crowd and the acclamation and the arrival of Jesus on the Mount of Olives. It's, you can, can almost kind of read between the lines and, and hear what the disciples are thinking, hear what they're thinking as they, they go to get the colt. The story unfolds just the way Jesus says it would. What a strange thing, right? Go to the village, get that colt that's never been ridden. If the owner wants to know why, just tell him the Lord needs it. They go and do that. The owner says, what are you doing? The Lord needs it. And you can just read their minds, can't you? It's really happening. It's really beginning to happen. The way Jesus said it would. And then they, then they, they bring Jesus, they put him on the colt, and in front of him a crowd forms as they enter into Jerusalem, as they, as they make their way to the Mount of Olives. And by the way, if you've ever been to the Holy Land, it is an amazing view to be up on the Mount of Olives, the Kidron Valley down before you, and on the hill that rises above you, there is Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, gleaming in the sunshine. It's, it's even to this day, it's still one of the most amazing sights I've ever seen. Imagine Jesus on the Mount of Olives, the gleaming city in the distance, and a crowd begins to form. And again, read the minds of the disciples. They're putting out their cloaks for, for him to ride upon. That's like an ancient Near Eastern version of the red carpet. This day is a, a combination of the Oscars and a, and a Super Bowl parade. A crowd forms. They're, they're, they're clapping and cheering and, and, and praising God. The disciples are even saying, Luke says that they're, they're praising God for all the acts of power they've seen. You see, the disciples had been worried. They'd been really concerned that Jesus was talking too much about suffering and death servanthood, 
Now, now, finally, read their minds again. We're here, Jerusalem. It's the most powerful political city in that area. Finally, Jesus is going to exert his power. Finally, we're going to be in charge. We're going to take control. Jesus is going to cut loose. Now, I suppose we can't blame him. I, I, I wouldn't mind having a parade. I like, I like being in a parade. Who, who of us does not want some acclaim so, to, to win the award? Who of us wouldn't want to get the deal, to, to make it all happen? I, honestly, I'm, I'm as competitive as anyone I know. Uh, we, we were playing a family board game. I mean, I, I want to get the win. I, I want to do everything I can to get it. I remember a few years ago, we were playing a family board game. It was Julie and me and our, our sons, Nate and Stephen, and, and I won the game, and I was pretty thrilled, and my son was kind of irritated at the way I was behaving. He stood up, and he just looked at me and said, you're a hyper-competitive jerk. <laughs> no, really, he said that. I looked at Julie for support, and she went, So uh, trust me, I want the win. I want the award. I want the acclaim. I'd love to have the big house and the overstuffed bank account and all that. But really, really, is that, is that what we dream of? Is that all we want in the long run? Fred Craddock was my preaching hero. I was in a workshop with him, a workshop for preachers. We told a story about a, a well-known, fairly prominent preacher. You'd probably recognize his name if I gave it out. This preacher called Fred one Monday morning in distress. He said, Fred, I, I've, I've got to talk to you. I, I need some advice. I'm very upset. Fred said, sure, there's a coffee shop not far from, from my office. Let's meet there. And so they went over to the coffee shop and sat down together. And Fred said, well, what's going on? And the man said, yesterday in my, in my church, I delivered what I think is the best sermon I've ever given in my life. At the end, there was a standing ovation, a long, loud standing ovation. And Fred said, that's wonderful, but what's the problem? And the man, he was very anxious, downtrodden even. He said, what am I going to do Sunday? What am I going to do next week? And the week after that? See, maybe the problem was his dream was too small. Maybe his dream was to preach the great sermon, to finally nail it, to get the standing ovation, to move hearts and minds and help the congregation finally discover some joy and some passion. Maybe, maybe, maybe his dream was more for personal acclaim than anything else. And it turns out that it was too small. What about you? What do you dream of? What do you dream about? At the end of the day, at the end of the night, what do you dream of? A hand to hold, maybe? Someone to love? To love you back? I did a funeral yesterday here in the sanctuary, 1230, for a woman named Cheryl Harbold, a member of our church. A week ago, I met with her husband and her son and her brother to plan the service. While we were talking about what we would do and songs we would have and all that sort of thing, I stopped and said, tell me, tell me about her life. What was she like? And Chris, her husband, said she was bright, thoughtful, kind, sweet, and his voice caught in his throat. He had to look away, and there were tears in his eyes. He paused, and then he, then he said, she was never envious or jealous. 
she knew how important the other person was. And I was struck. Did you hear it? Did you hear an echo there of the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Corinth? I was struck at the way it, he sounded very much like what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church 2,000 years ago. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or rude. It does not insist on its own way. At the end of the day, is there anything greater to dream of than for someone to love us? Than for someone to love? The crowd on, on Palm Sunday seems to have forgotten what Jesus preached back in Luke 6 about loving your enemies, about blessing those who curse you, about, about blessing those who, and praying for those who mistreat you. Now they're enamored with power. Now they can just feel it. Finally, we're here. Finally, we are at the, at the source of all the political power in our, in our world. We're ready to take over and take charge. Palm Sunday begins with shouts of joy and, and power and dreams of being in control, but the story reveals the story reveals that the dreams are like the morning dew. It's here for a moment and then it's gone. We can see. Did you hear Jesus' words? He weeps. We can see there's a cross looming not far away. And the dreams, maybe you remember what Carly Simon sang. I had some dreams, but they were clouds in my coffee. They're just clouds in the coffee. They're there for a moment, and then they're gone. The story appears in, in all four Gospels. The Christmas story only appears in two. The Beatitudes, only in two. The Prodigal Son, only in one. But the Gospel writers, all four of them include this story. It's as though they want to make sure that we hear this and we understand that it is a sort of a parable for the church. We're being given an idea of what the church is called to do and, and be. Yes, gather in joy. Gather in celebration. Wave palm branches occasionally. Have a party. Yes, absolutely. That's part of it. But also allow the dream the dream of Jesus, the dream of heaven, to capture us, to take hold of us. Why does Jesus weep when he comes to Jerusalem? Because they've lost the dream. They've forgotten of the dreams of peace. Jesus calls us to, to love our, our neighbors, to love our enemies. He calls us to sacrifice in the name of service, to sacrifice our dreams of power and control for ones of love and, and grace and and mercy. You know, any time I, I hear that word sacrifice, I, I, I apologize, but my brain goes to, to baseball and to the sacrifice bunt. You know, you know about a sacrifice bunt, right? That's when the batter's up to, up to bat and the coach gives him a sign. When I coached, this was my sign for a sacrifice bunt. And then the kid uh, kneels down or, or, or squats down a little bit, turns the bat around and gives up his at bat basically to bunt the ball to advance the runner to a base where he can score more easily or he or she can score more, more easily. Uh, I, when I, my kids were so confused about all the signs that I would give them, I finally gave up. and I just took cardboard paper and I wrote the word bunt on it and would hold it up. <laughs> I, heard, I heard about a coach who, who gave the bunt sign, the sacrifice bunt sign to his, to his kid. Kid's up the bat. The kid taps his cap, you know, that's a way of acknowledging that he understands, gets back into the, into the batter's box, pitch comes in, he takes a huge swing and a miss. Doesn't look at the coach. Another pitch comes in, another huge swing and a miss. Third pitch, still not looking at the coach, a huge swing and a miss, and he strikes out on three straight pitches, and he goes to the dugout, and the coach said, did you see the sign for sacrifice? Yeah, but I didn't think you meant it. <laughs> now, it's a cute story, 
And it's a parable for the church. It's a lesson for us. We know, we know. If you've been around church a couple of weeks even, at some point you're going to hear that Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you, bless those who, who attack you. And when Jesus comes at the end of the parade and asks us what happened to the dream of love, we say, oh, I didn't think you meant it, Lord. We, we didn't think you meant it. Do, do you want to be sure of what Jesus is dreaming of? Do you want to be sure of what he means? Look at the story. Jesus is sitting on a colt. It's a t- it's, it's, it, and other, one of the other gospels says it's a donkey. It's a small animal. Jesus is a fully grown male. His feet are probably dragging in the dust as it rides along. It's comical. People are throwing their, their cloaks on the ground in front of them. These aren't the powerful and the rich and the mighty. These are most likely the marginalized, the people from the edges of life. Who are excited about Jesus, excited to see him, but they're not the strong ones. You want to see a real parade? On the other side of Jerusalem, Pilate, the governor of Palestine, he's leading a Roman army. Hundreds, maybe thousands of men behind him, heavily armed, heavily armored, spears, chariots. Pilate is riding, not a donkey, he's on a stallion. They're coming into Jerusalem during this holiday week to be sure everyone behaves, and if you don't, we've got a cross for every one of you. They'll crucify as many as they need in order to keep order. The political intrigue here is astonishing. The question that, that Luke is asking us is this, which parade do you want to follow? The one with Jesus, the humble king, the servant of peace, or the one with Pilate and the spears and the nuclear weapons and the stealth bombers and the tanks. Which parade? The one who sounds like a prophet and invites us to love our enemies? Or the other? Jesus knows the cheering will stop. I don't know how he knows, but he he knows. He knows that the crowd that is calling him king will in a few days have been dispersed. They'll be gone. They'll deny him. They'll betray him. They'll leave him alone. They'll abandon him. Soon he'll be arrested, tortured by the politicians in power and by those same political power persons be put to death. Somehow he knows. How he knows, I don't know. Why do they kill him? Because they're afraid of the dreamer. They've lost the dream. They're afraid that their power and their control will be lost as well. What the disciples finally understand after the crucifixion and the resurrection is that following Jesus doesn't have a whole lot to do. It doesn't have a whole lot to do with cheers and applause and acclaim and awards and shiny things that we put up on our shelves. The real question from Jesus is, when the cheering stops, when you've come to the end of your life, what do you want to be remembered for? The shiny things on the mantle? The big bank account? The perfectly groomed car? Or the love you gave away, the grace you received, the hope you instilled. When people stand at your graveside, when they stand next to our casket or our urn, what will they remember? The things or the love? I've noticed something in my ministry that Richard Rohr says is very true. A 
follower of Jesus is rarely worried about popularity or feeling good. A follower of Jesus isn't worried about the cheering or, or, or the, the awards or the acclaim. In fact, realizes even that sometimes the cheering gets in the way of the dream. But the dream of peace is difficult. The way of Jesus is narrow and, and, and hard. This idea of giving ourselves over to as servants to the world feels, especially in our culture, so strange. Jesus knows it's hard for us, and that's why he weeps. He knows that the way to peace is difficult. Have you seen the Lord, have you seen the Lord of the Rings or, or read the movie? <laughs> seen the movie or read the books? In the third one, there's a scene in the film that, that just haunts me. Frodo, who is the hero in this quest, he has the ring of power, the ring that needs to be destroyed in order for evil to be wiped out from Middle Earth. Frodo is done. He's worn out. He has nothing left. He says to his friend Sam, I can't do this, Sam. Sam essentially replies, I know, Frodo, it's, t- it's hard, but think of all the great stories. Think of all the great women and men who went forward, who continued on, even though they were tired, even though they were overwhelmed. Think of all of them. They had lots of chances of turning back, but they didn't because they were holding on to something. They were holding on to something. Frodo says, what are they holding on to, Sam? And Sam says that there's something good in the world and it's worth fighting for. There's something good. We follow Jesus today because it feels good, because we know it's right. We're waving the palms, we're dancing with the children, the choir is singing with joy, and yes, right on King Jesus. And I gotta tell you though, sometimes I just wanna stay there. I don't wanna follow. I just wanna celebrate and have the party and then maybe plan another party the next week and maybe another one the next week. And yet somehow I can hear Jesus echoing from a distance. Really? Is that all you dream of? Just a party? Maybe that's the problem. Maybe the problem truly is our dreams. Maybe our dreams are too small. What about our dreams? What about your dreams? When are they going to be changed? Can we have a faith that is built on God's love, God's sacrifice, and God's forgiveness? Are we ready to dream of a congregation built on faith in a God whose love is given to everyone? Are we ready to dream of a church that is willing to go anywhere in the name of Jesus Christ with a cup of water for the thirsty, food for the naked, food for the hungry, clothes for the naked, a welcome for the refugees. Are we ready to dream of a church whose halls are filled with black and white, young and old, rich and poor, gay and straight, and every other category you can identify? Are we ready to dream with Jesus? Are we ready to dream with heaven of what heaven can do with this great and grand and glorious church? Are we ready? to ride with Jesus, to follow, we are. I'm certain of it. Amen.